commemorating, I wouldn't say celebrating, but commemorating the 21st anniversary of, of Guantanamo. I mean, if, if, there's, if there's anything that could be actually described as a stain on the conscience of the West, and there are many, many stains, but, but I'm going to single out Guantanamo. It's been around for 21 years. Uh, a paralegal sphere, um, uh, a world that doesn't really belong to anyone in particular. It doesn't belong to the Americans. It doesn't belong to the Brits. And I'm talking here about nations. No jurisdiction, um, you know, uh, supersedes that of, of Guantanamo. It's 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 almost unbelievable. We're talking about bastions of democracy, you know, in in, in today's terms. But still, 21 years. And Madam, you uh, you happen to spend some of those 21 years in, inside. Well, you know, Anas, um, 21 years in the West is the the year of coming of age, isn't it? When you when you reach 21, that is, yeah. you are actually yeah. seen as an adult. So. There would be there would be there are kids now who have grown into adults, including some of the children of the men held in Guantanamo. Mm. You know, I, I just came back recently from Morocco, um, uh, and met a man who'd been held Abdul Latif for twenty years without charge or trial. Abdul Latif Nasser. Abdul Latif Nasser, yeah. Mm. Um, and, and recently, just a couple of guys, Pakistani without guys, trial, without charge, no charge, twenty no years. Yeah, no. So there's you know no court case. <laughs> Essentially, no need for legal representation because wow. there are no laws. There, there aren't any charges. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. nothing. I mean, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I, I just recently, um, you know, spoke to a young boy called Jawad in mm. Pakistan. His father was cleared for release alongside his own brother because they're both in Guantanamo. Wow. Uh, they've been there for 21 years. Oh my God! He's never met his father, oh and his God. father's never been charged with a crime, charge or crime. And this isn't some, you know, deepest, darkest. Uh, developing nation. This is America, as you said. The, and the it, it's, it's, and it, we're, democracy. we're not talking here about some sort of fictional tale. We're not talking about, you know, a, a, a John Le Carre sort of novel. We're talking about something in reality which was experienced by hundreds yeah. of human beings. Well, and I think as well, mentioning family members is really crucial because every acceptable prison around the world where the law applies. Mm. People who have been convicted of crimes, however terrible those crimes are, are allowed family visits. At Guantanamo, even if your family could somehow raise the money to fly out to this remote prison on a naval base in Cuba, you are not allowed to. It's, it's the only example that I know of where you're just completely cut off. And for most of Guantanamo's history, people didn't have any access to their families at all. Now I think they're, you know, they set up Zoom calls, they're allowed yeah. Yeah. to communicate. Yeah. Every few um, months, yes. Every yeah. few months, yeah. Um, but it was it was nothing. And it's just one example of of the lawlessness of Guantanamo, mm. of what happens when a country like the United States that claims to respect the rule of law tears up all of its domestic and international laws and treaty obligations as they did after 9-11 and sets up a place like Guantanamo. And let's, I mean, it's, you know, when we, when we talk about 21 years, it makes, I don't know, it makes me at least feel really old because my, my second son is not yet 21. So basically, you know, his entire lifetime, there were people who were locked inside who had absolutely no rights, absolutely no rights, who were subject to some of the most obscene forms of torture 
who have endured uh, you know oppression and conditions that are unimaginable to those who haven't tried them you muallim you might have witnessed or seen or experienced yourself but uh, you know we're talking about uh, an establishment that was set up as an act of retribution and i i i can't i can't find um, a more apt description than this that it was an act of vengeance rather than an act of justice you know that's the point isn't it because if it was an act of justice of seeking justice you know george bush says said that uh, people in guantanamo bay are now seeing uh, american justice well that's an oxymoron because mm. to hold people uh, for this long and to be uh, vetted by or questioned by the world's most powerful intelligence and law enforcement agencies and still at the end of that not a single person has been found can, has been found guilty of their involvement in 9/11 the reason why Gitmo was set up incredible so you've had all these people released Osama bin Laden's bodyguards senior Taliban members who are now ministers in their government wow. um all of that's happened and yet still there are people like the the Rabbani brothers who are neither members of al-Qaeda neither members of the Taliban and still held there without charge without trial because they are poor innocent muslims who have nobody to advocate for them and they remind me how many people have gone through the doors of uh, Guantanamo 779 people have been held by the US military at Guantanamo there is a there was a 6 month period where the CIA ran one of its secret black site torture prisons within Guantanamo so there was another man who was held there but was never actually held in the prison population of Guantanamo that's why sometimes you see 780 prisoners referred to yeah. but yeah 779 and uh, and how many still still remain there there are 35 men still today still held at Guantanamo wow. yeah and uh, amongst them are the the father and the brother the yeah the rabani brothers yeah yeah and there is of course you know there's several individuals there's this Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who's supposed to be yeah. the master the mastermind that, yeah. yeah but there's also some, a crucial case the case of Abu Zubaida and that really is one of the most horrific cases mm-hmm. uh, the entire US torture program was based upon trying to extract information from him mm-hmm. he was tortured in Thailand in Poland in Lithuania in uh, Romania he's actually if you could actually believe this right because of the role of the CIA in his torture the, the all of the european countries that i've mentioned poland lithuania and romania have been forced by the european uh, human rights court to compensate him hundreds of thousands of euros whilst he's in Guantanamo uh, for their role in wow. facilitating his torture wow and he's done a whole series of like uh, self portraits of torture that were published in the new york times wow. which are really horrific one of them and i'll just give an example he's in a coffin he describes how he's in a coffin he's naked he soiled himself and he wants to pray in a coffin and i've asked this question you know, at a mosque once that can any imam tell me the the fiqhi ruling the exactly. islamic ruling wow. on how do you pray wow. naked in a mosque in in a, in a coffin wow. um and i want i wanted him to think about this when we have all that kind of bickering going on as <laughs> it gets some context Incredible. please Incredible. Yeah. but what i mean okay so here's a a very simplistic call it even naive question why till now why those 35 still why well i think we have to <clears throat> we have to go back to the very beginning mm-hmm. which is that the prison was set up outside the law so the men held at guantanamo were 
held without any rights whatsoever as human beings. No rights, no body that they could appeal to, to say, you might have made a mistake here, uh, or no body they could appeal to to say, is, is this forever? Um, will I get any kind of due process? Nothing. It's really just, it's really crucial just to dwell for a moment on that foundational truth about Guantanamo, a prison where people were absolutely held with no rights whatsoever. And so everything that has happened since then has involved either politics, so pretty much everyone was supporting George W. Bush at the beginning, and then when people started to hear about how bad Guantanamo was, then government started to feel a bit of pressure, mm -hmm. and so government started to say, we need our guys back now. This is all political. This didn't involve the law. Lawyers, meanwhile, fought for years to get the prisoners the right to go before a court to ask why they were being held. The great writ of habeas corpus, which, you know, the, uh, the, the barons uh, imposed on King John over 800 years ago, and which over centuries developed to protect all of us, um, supposedly from executive overreach. After long legal struggles, the men finally um, secure habeas corpus rights. Um, those are then taken away by Congress and reinstated in 2008. And for a two-year period, the law applied at Guantanamo. So men, uh, men's cases went before judges in the US district courts who looked at the government's supposed evidence and said, you have failed to demonstrate even with a, this, a very low burden yeah. of proof yeah. that these people were involved in any meaningful way whatsoever with Al-Qaeda or the Taliban mm. or other associated forces. And, um, and these men were released. Um, over 30, I think, were released as a result of... During these, those two years. During these two years, from 2008 to 2010. Right. Then essentially right-wing appeals court judges started um, changing the rules governing the habeas cases. Sorry, uh, on this, what happened to allow for those two years to be governed as such? Was it the fact, because those two years obviously coincided with the first term of Obama, and he ran his campaign on closing Guantanamo. I mean, I, I remember this very, very well. And many, many people ce celebrated uh, Obama's but, coming because he was going to do this. One thing is that it's like, you know, it's putting the knife in the back, putting it a few inches back and saying, didn't we do you a favor? You know, as Malcolm X says, yeah. George Bush got all those people imprisoned, mm. but he he released the largest number of people as well. So it's not like Obama was doing any particular favors for anybody. Uh, if anything, while he was doing the extra mm. or maintaining the extra judicial detention, he was doing the extrajudicial killing. So the, the use of drone strikes yeah, yeah, in Pakistan, yeah, yeah. in Yemen, in Somalia, yeah. in Afghanistan, later in Libya. And by the way, I, you know, yeah. I was, uh, you know, I was telling Andy earlier that uh, in one of my many conversations with uh, American officials, um, one of them had the audacity to say, well, Guantanamo is horrific as you might paint it, but it's the best of, of many far worse scenarios and i said what, what you know how could anything be far worse he said well we could go around the world and kill them which is what they'd be which doing. is essentially yeah. what, what then transpired um, that they were doing you know it's interesting i, I met um the the former uh, undersecretary for human, u.s homeland security who used mm. to play golf with bush mm. and he sat down with me and a bunch of other former guantanamo prisoners in a private meeting and he said after we told him some of our stories and the stories of others including 
our children being born while, we, while we're in Guantan, we don't even get to see them. And he hears it in an English accent, in a British accent, yeah. which sounds to him a little bit more familiar than say, somebody that sounds, that comes from a world that he doesn't recognize. Yeah. And he, he said, and I quote, if Bush was to hear you speak, I think he'd have a tear in his eye. Oh my God. <laughs> so I don't know, I didn't know what to make of it, oh but he also said that we'd like to, and it's the only time I've ever heard this from a, a US official, that we'd like to bring in the process of somehow starting to say that we're sorry. When was this? This was 2011. Wow. And uh, it was him and uh, alongside a former U.S. general. They were part of the, uh, remember the, the detainee uh, treatment pro um, uh, project led by um, um, uh, Senator, I uh, forget the one that was uh, held, held prisoner in Vietnam. Uh, McCain. Yeah, John McCain. Yeah. Right. Okay. It, was, but it was him who'd, who'd helped to set up that, that, uh, that program. Um, uh, and it reported... Yeah. And it was essentially around the time, a couple of years later, the U.S. did a Senate report on torture, which is that famous report by Den Senator Dianne Feinstein's office, mm. in which they recognized that over 119 prisoners were subjected to the torture program, wow. including Abu Zubaydah, wow. who, as Andy said earlier on, he said, are these prisoners supposed to be here forever? Well, that is one of the categories. It's an wow. actual category in Guantanamo called the forever prisoners, meaning, and this is what they say, he's too innocent to charge and too dangerous to release. Wow. Look at that. What, what, what a category we've, we've created in this 21st century. This is the thing. Century. I mean, I, I, I still want to come back to those particular two years and, 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 and how then we, we sort of push back. But, but this is what gets me. The fact that in countries that are seen around the world as being democratic and being transparent and being upholding of values such as justice, such as equality, such as freedoms and the like, that a country such as the United States can actually set up an entire sphere, an entire life that is outside the jurisdiction of any law, and then come up with absolutely ludicrous statements such as this, or classifications such as what you've just mentioned. It's just absolutely mind-boggling. Well, Andy actually made a film called Outside the Law. <laughs> which is essentially, it was screened all around the country and, and we even went to show it in Poland, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, where, where yeah. some of the torture of Abu Zubaydah had taken place. We were actually talking to the lawyers together wow. and, and, and this film was being screened in rural parts of Poland, cities, some, I think wow. we couldn't pronounce their names. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was essentially to tell the world that this is all outside the law. Yeah. And, and, uh, and by the way, I mean, let's not forget that... Um, for many, for many, there was um, uh, there was a, a, a an, an initial station of detention uh, which was in Bagram, and yes. many were held for some for days, some for weeks, some for months, before then being yeah. landed. I, in I, I was held in Bagram for a year, uh, for, for a one, year, for one year, for you know, eleven and a half months, and I saw two prisoners murdered by the soldiers. I saw them beaten to death by the American soldiers. Um, because in one instance they found it funny that the prisoner was saying Allah every time he was kicked oh, in his leg and he was kicked a hundred times in his leg. The, you know, there's a film called Taxi to the Dark Side that won the Oscar for Best Documentary, 2008 I think it was, um, by Alex Gibney. And uh, it features the story of this man, the man that I saw murdered. Now imagine, he's, this is not in a battle zone, he's not in a military zone, nobody's armed there. He's 
kicked to death by blunt force trauma, by, by literally kickboxing style kicks. And the the prisoners, the, the sorry, the, the guards receive dishonorable discharge. You know, the really weird, I don't know if you know this, Andy, but I, I, I don't know if I told you, but almost two years later, after I saw this murder, I wasn't sure he was dead. There was a rumor. I was in my cell in solitary confinement in Guantanamo and two CID officers, they, I'd never heard of the CID before, not in America. They'd come in and they said, they showed me a photograph of, of Dilawar's body. Yeah. And that's how I first knew that he's dead. And then they said, they showed me the photographs of the soldiers. And they said, can you recognize any of these soldiers who were on duty that night? And I pointed each one of them out. And, and then they asked me, you know, would I be willing to be a witness in any potential prosecution against these soldiers? And I'm held myself without charge or trial. Can you imagine that? And I said, yes, I would be, but how are you going to do that? Are you going to take me by four? Yeah. How are you going to bring me into court yeah. with a hood over my head yeah. and unshackled? How are you going to do that? And these people who were responsible for these deaths in Bagram as well were part of a, a group of soldiers that were then sent to Abu Ghraib in Iraq, yep. where we eventually, for the only time, saw evidence of the abuse of prisoners. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of them, I mean, he's named, so, so it's, it's, he's, he's openly talked about it, is, is Damon Corsetti. He was an interrogator when I was in Bagram and he used to speak to me. In fact, he gave me a book. I've still got that book. It's it's catch. It's called Catch Twenty Two, which is known as is the anti-war novel of our yeah. times, right? Yeah. And he was brought up for charges of detainee abuse in Bagram, and then in Abu Ghraib, where he was redeployed, including against females. Wow. He came out afterwards, totally traumatized, speaking out against the war, giving evidence against himself, and he he became a bit of a, a vegetable afterwards because I spoke to him. But this is kind of because General Jeffrey Miller, who I I saw him with my eyes when was involved in setting up Guantanamo and the, and the enhanced interrogation program, he went on to Guantanamo eyes, as he says, uh, Abu Ghraib in Iraq. So that's the kind of causal link between, let's start here, um, see how it goes, and practice it in Iraq. It's, uh, I mean, we're, we're, again, uh, I, as someone who, who have heard of campaigned and the such, but can never, ever imagine the, uh, the the scale of bestiality of uh, depravity that was uh, that first of all allowed for the concept of these detention centers, whether it be in Bagram, whether it be in Poland, or whether it be in in Guantanamo, ultimately, um, uh, and and you know imagining what was going on is something that is beyond me. But um, the reality is that it did. It, it was, it did happen, um, it was going on, and apparently for 35 people, it still goes on. I mean, that's, that's the scale. But once again, my question is, and I take this from a, a conversation that, uh, that took place between myself and again, one of the, one of the, the advisors to the state secretary um, many, many years ago, um, stating that one of the problems that faced Obama uh, living up to his pledge to close Guantanamo was the fact that, I mean, this was his explanation, that many of the countries from, from which these det detainees came from wouldn't have them back. And, um, and that they were, too, and he gave me the example of several Arab countries, for instance, who just didn't want to hear about 
the people and they said no 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 they, you know their their citizenships have been retracted and they therefore we're not responsible for them how much of this continuation of the existence of this stain is down to mere administrative glitches or hindrances and how much is it because the policy remains that policy that was introduced and again once in my view in order to seek vengeance and uh, to as a retribution for 9-11 um for it carrying on uh, carrying on until today well it was also you know it was also a failed attempt to extract intelligence <clears throat> i think they really did think <clears throat> that they um I mean, you know, it's shameful to think people arrived at Guantanamo. They knew nothing about them because they hadn't screened them adequately in, in Afghanistan. Mm. Then they decided that they were all terrorists hiding secrets. So if they interrogated them and they said they knew nothing, it was because they'd been trained to resist interrogation by Al-Qaeda. So therefore, they started torturing and abusing them. Mm. And all the information they extracted through this, they claimed was, you know, was worthwhile intelligence. And a lot of it, you know, you can see in the in the in the fullest form that we got to see it in the classified files from Guantanamo that were released by WikiLeaks in 2011, mm -hmm. on which I worked as a media partner, where well, you could see that unfortunately, you know, a number of prisoners at Guantanamo were prevailed upon through torture, abuse, or even through bribing them with better living conditions, or through exhausting them through dragging them into cells in the middle of the night to tell lies about their fellow prisoners about, you know, so the, the whole thing is that, um, releasing prisoners, you know, the problem there comes back to what I was saying before that after the appeals, right-wing appeals court judges shut down habeas corpus and mm -hmm. said, everything the government says must be treated as, uh, as presumptively accurate. Yeah. Is this a then, secret, secret uh, evidence? Yeah, this is evidence that you can't, <clears throat> you can't get a challenge. But it's, the point Andy's making is that what a, they've made a statement. Let's just yeah. say this person is a terrorist. That's now it. You've got it to, it you've should, got to, yeah, it should be taken by the judge exactly. as true, as factual, Absolutely. as evidence. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So once habeas corpus was shut down, then, then the prisoners are back in a position where their release is, um, is at the political whim of the executive or, or, or Congress. The courts have ruled themselves out again of having any mm. involvement in it. And so releasing men from Guantanamo does involve the US government having to negotiate with home governments. Mm. And I'm sure that there were cases where home governments said, we don't want these men. But the, big, the bigger problem was that, um, was and primarily involved the Yemenis, but not just the Yemenis. There were Palestinians in Guantanamo. These mm. were people who could not be safely returned to their home countries. Yeah. Um, part of this um, has involved over the years, Republicans passing um, provisions in the annual National Defense Authorization Act, which explicitly prevents the United States from sending prisoners back to Yemen and to other prescribed countries. Um, in the case of the Palestinians, they couldn't get back to Palestine because the gatekeeper was Israel and Israel, yeah. the Israeli yeah. government wouldn't let any former prisoners back um, I mean, Abu the, Zubaydah, for example, the most yeah. is a Palestinian. He's yeah. a stateless Palestinian. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, this is really interesting because I've been involved with a lot of the former Guantanamo prisoners who've been returned in different mm. parts of the world, have visited from all over the Arab world and beyond. 
and it varies from place to place. Not only in some places are they not welcome, they're in prison straight away. Yeah. But in other places, they're given a hero's welcome, right. literally met by the government. Yeah. Uh, for example, Samuel Hajj and all the Sudanese guys mm. were, were welcomed yes. in that way. Yes. And whenever I've traveled with Sami around the Arab world, yeah. it's not me they come to see. The, yeah, they, they come they, to they, see Everyone wants to see Sami. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing about this is that the, the you know, I was involved in some of the resettlement discussions with countries within Europe and beyond with yeah. some of their governments um, to see if they would welcome or bring in yeah. some of the former Guantanamo prisoners because they can't return, say, to Tunisia yes. or to Libya or, or beyond. And some took them and some didn't. And all of them said this to me, and this is, and including some of the foreign ministers and, and actual ministers, mm. uh, um, Deputy Prime Minister of Luxembourg. Well, this is America's problem. Yeah, This is America's problem. Yeah. Why should we solve it? Yeah. But the reality is, the, I'll give an example of the Uyghurs, for example, that mm. from you know East Turkestan in China. They can't go back to China. That's right. one place. That, and they would say, we'd rather remain in Guantanamo. We thank God we were sent to Guantanamo, not yeah. to China. So they're sent to places like El Salvador, Bermuda, yes. Palau, Albania. I, I read about, I mean, several years ago, I read about the case of someone who had been returned to, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember which country, so I won't mention anything just in case I'm wrong. But after a few months, he sent a plea saying, please just take me back to Guantanamo because yeah. I am being abused, I'm being humiliated, I'm yeah. being persecuted. So, so, so there's some in Kazakhstan, there was four sent to Kazakhstan. <clears throat> One of them died there. One of them, Lutfi, Lutfi Bin Ali, mm. um, couldn't get the treatment. So they managed to send him to, to Mauritania. Mm. Um, he couldn't get to Tunisia in time. He also died. And this is just a lack from lack of treatment, uh, yeah. receiving treatment. And one of the men who's still held there, so the two who survived being sent to Kazakhstan, um, is um, su is suffering, um, yeah. persecuted by the government, abandoned mm -hmm. by the United States. Um, and there's a, there was an article just written about him last week by mm -hmm. by a great journalist called Elise Swain, who writes for The Intercept. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Covering an otherwise, you know, completely forgotten story. Sabri al Qureshi, his name is. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you, you. This is interesting. I mean, the fact that some, and listen, I, I, whilst we're talking about this grim reality that we're all witness to, uh, because it's happened in our lifetimes, and some of us tried, some of us, you know, suffered, some of us did as much as we could. Uh, but let's not forget that people around the world actually condemn this as an act of, of, of inhumanity. And many continue to until this very day. I have to say that my gauge on the, the volume of the streets, whether it be here in the UK or across Europe, or um, was far louder in the first 10 years than it has been over the last 10 years. And I'm not sure whether that's because the sort of British European detainees have been released and therefore to many that's the case closed uh, or whether it's we're now just uh, basically desensitized to the fact that Guantanamo was a reality of our existence but amongst those I mean you mentioned Swain for instance in The Intercepts but there's also Jodie Foster who uh, produced directed as well as starred in um, uh, an award-winning, I believe, movie uh, a few years ago about the Mauritanian, mm -hmm. and um, and uh, you know, and that went far in 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 sort of igniting uh, the 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 fever for, for for the closure of, of Guantanamo and the settling of all these cases. Um, 
but I have to say that it also allowed for a false sense of, you know, we've done our bit. See, you know, we've admitted our mistakes. There we go. This is a Hollywood movie by a Hollywood superstar and talking about this story and, and giving back this man, Muhammad, giving back his, his sort of whatever was taken away from him during the many years that he was imprisoned. How do you see that? Um, you know, it, so I've I've done some, <clears throat> some, some. I've met with the film producer, um, the director, um, Kevin McDonald and, and Mahamadou, and spoken about the film. Mm. And there's one thing I said to Mahamadou about the film. He's Mahamadou's a, a lovely character. I met him very briefly in, in Bagram. I didn't see him in Guantanamo. Mm. Guantanamo, most of the time, he spent totally isolated, separate from everybody mm. else. But his character, Mahamadou, has a, has a very, uh, very likable character, and and Hollywood likes him. Mm. And they like him because he's very forgiving, mm. and uh, that's a beautiful part of 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 the the spectrum of type of people that exist within Guantanamo. But there are others who are less forgiving, and who want to talk about the other part of Guantanamo, which is what happens afterwards. Mohammedu suffered it for a while because he couldn't travel either. Yeah. Um, but here, here's one example: uh, twenty-three prisoners were sent to the United Arab Emirates to be resettled. Where were they resettled? In a prison. One of those prisoners, his name was Hamidullah Tarakhil. He'd been imprisoned by the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, by uh, the Americans in Guantanamo, and three years, four years in UAE. He says the worst imprisonment he's ever tasted in his life is the UAE. was the UAE. He died Incredible. six months after he was released. Incredible. The others, all of these men, now these uh, Yemenis. <clears throat> so here, here's the deal. America says that we can't send them to Yemen because it's too volatile. They're held for six years, the Yemenis, six years in, in uh, UAE without charge or trial, unable to get any visits. And then at the end of that, where are they sent? Yeah. Yemen. Allah. And so out of all of that group of 23, there's one prisoner that remains. His name is Ravil Mingazov. He's a Russian Tatar. Mm. And he has a son in, London, in Leicester that he's never met. In Leicester, it's incredible. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. So, so this is the and, and yeah. your son is in London now. Yeah, <clears throat> I met him a few oh, years. Did you meet back. Him? Yeah, and and but but what you, I mean, the point that you make was which is quite interesting is the fact that unlike Muhammadu, they're slightly less forgiving. They want to talk about their the, you know what they saw and what they witnessed. Yeah, and they probably want to be you know somehow somehow recompense them. I mean, how how do you recompense someone who's spend 20 years away from their family and uh, in you isolation. Don't. Even Muhammadu, <coughs> you know, Muhammadu, one of the most heartbreaking things in his story, yeah. you know, he says that they come to take him, the Mauritanian police, and they yeah. themselves are, are being pressed ganged yeah. into doing something. Muhammad is not wanted for anything in Mauritania. Yeah. Yeah. He says goodbye to his mother. Allah. And he comes back yeah. and she's not there anymore. She's not there anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, you uh, can't... Uh, how are you going to... How do you recompense I think the main. I think the main thing that needs to happen mm. and um, is accountability. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm not talking about compensation in the, in the form of money, but I would say that if, you know, if we can see a process where the United States has to be held to account for what it's done, then at the end, there would be money. But the first thing that, that is most important for former prisoners is that they remain tainted by having been declared enemy combatants without rights, yeah. never charged, never tried. Yeah. The suspicion and the taint that attaches to this yes. is worse than having been convicted Absolutely. of a crime. Absolutely. 
and the, yet the United States won't take responsibility for yeah. it. So I, I, to this, to this day, me and several people, I've documented a lot of this, to this day, whether you're traveling, whether you're opening accounts, bank accounts, yeah. whether whatever yeah. it is, and, and if you, you litigate, you'll find at the end of that litigation is a message by the United States of America saying mm. that you were held in Guantanamo as an enemy combatant yeah. suspected, yeah. and that hasn't left us. Yeah. Yeah. There's, no, there's no process in which you can get exonerated yeah. because there was no process to put you there in the first place that was legally recognized, yeah. right? So, so that stays with you forever, wherever you go. So, and so that's the thing, Mozam, is that eventually what the United States government has to be compelled to do, if there is to be anything resembling justice for the men wrongly imprisoned, is that they have to commit to reviewing all the mistakes that they made so that we, so that we can get to a position where they accept that they have condemned people to a lifetime of suspicion and But you harassment. see, Andy, in order to, to reach that point, you, I mean, the U.S. government, whoever's, you know, behind this, needs to rescind the very <clears throat> premise upon which Guantanamo was found. Yeah. The very yeah. premise and of it, what was the war on terror. The yeah. problem with seeking justice from America on this accountability is that Guantanamo is still open for business. It is. Yeah, it's it still is. running. What do you do and, with that? Yeah, yeah. And so how are they going to reset it when they're still doing it. Well, they, well, as you know, so the most urgent, that's the most urgent mm. thing, is that men are still held at Guantanamo yeah. who have been approved for release. <clears throat> you know, there are two categories of men, essentially, at Guantanamo. Were there any the, women, by the way? Just Not, the, no, not, not, not in Guantanamo. No. Right. Although there is a story I'll tell you afterwards when you finish this point. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story about that. But, you know, we have, we, we have to find, um, you know, anyone who's interested in Guantanamo as it is now after 21 years, the particular problems that there are men still held there, the thing we have to focus on this year um, is those 20 men approved for release and how, yeah. how in whatever way it is, we can exert pressure mm. um, on the United States government to release them. Because the reason they haven't been freed is because the law still doesn't apply at Guantanamo. Mm. These men were approved for release through administrative review processes. This one's called the periodic review boards. It mm. resembles a parole type process, but parole actually everywhere else in the in the the judicial system, the criminal justice system, takes place after someone has been convicted of a crime. Mm. They've never been charged and here, or tried. Here, and, and part <laughs> of these review boards, you've got a member of six different uh, U.S. departments, including law enforcement, including intelligence, including uh, um, defense, and all of that stuff. And look, here, here's the irony. A bunch of a large number of these people cleared for release are Yemenis, right? So they know every now you do not send them, you know, they can no more prisoners can be sent to the United Arab Emirates. Some get sent to Oman and they're doing let relatively well yeah. there. But what the past has shown is that you can release them to Yemen. Hmm. In the end, that's what the UAE did. UAE exactly did that, and they're home and they're fine. Yeah. So you can. So once you've created a narrative for yourself and saying, well, Yemen's too unstable, well, how stable is it to keep somebody <laughs> tortured for 21 years and then yeah. to add another year on top. Yeah. Well, they can't. The United, unfortunately, though, the United <coughs> States government can't release anyone to Yemen because U.S. law prohibits it. Um, it was an accident that mm. they were sent to the UAE and the UAE sent them back to Yemen. Yeah, that, yeah. that wasn't supposed to happen. But yeah, it yeah. also happened under Trump. Yeah. And for those four years under Trump, there literally was no one in, the, in his government 
who had any responsibility for Guantanamo at all. He just Because well, he signed an executive order, isn't it, to, to, cl to close Guantanamo. He said he wanted to read it, to fill it up yeah. uh, with more people, yeah. which was, I think, was plain to... Yeah, bad dudes. Yeah. 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 You know. yeah. And when on that point, fortunately, he was surrounded, even, even, even the craziest people that he surrounded with himself with in high offices of state and in his government said no. <laughs> You, we're not sending new people to Guantanamo because mm. it doesn't work. But, it, you know, here, here's the amazing part of all this, right, Anas, I have to say. You know, we've seen all this began in Afghanistan, didn't it? It, mm. it was all, you know, Al-Qaeda is supposed to be there, the warring terrorists in Afghanistan, or, um, the first invasions, and the Taliban and so yeah. forth. And half of, or a large number of the people in Guantanamo were, were there because they're associated with the Taliban. Yeah. Mike Pompeo, yeah. Uh, Secretary of State for Donald Trump, yeah. negotiated directly with, with the, the former Guantanamo prisoners in Doha, yeah. and that's where they began the agreement. He yes. met with Khairullah Khairullah and Nurullah Nuri, who are now all ministers in their government, which is absolutely bizarre. It's absurd. And so what that tells you is that if you can negotiate with the top leaders of the Taliban, yeah. why did you start the fight to begin with? Exactly. No, I, I, I always <laughs> tell this, by the way, I always tell this story, but it's, it's you know, sometimes when something that you feel is absolutely absurd to the you just keep telling the story because it's so unbelievable i try to convince myself that i remember in uh, during the the first term of obama around 2009 2010 probably i was uh, attending a, an international conference in doha and i was kept at the uh, the sheraton hotel very swanky very nice but the, the the official residence of international conferences in when it comes to qatar and I remember coming down early for breakfast one day, you know, around 6, 6.30. And uh, as soon as you leave the elevators, you're in front of the, the open spaced restaurant where breakfast is had. And virtually no one was there. It was way too early. But meeting me was the spectacle of John Kerry. John Kerry, mm -hmm. um, who was then the, what was he this? He wasn't the, for, he wasn't uh, the first time he wasn't the, for, uh, the, 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 the state of the secretary of state. He was something else. He had another position surrounded by about eight or nine of the leaders of Taliban. <laughs> sitting, sitting, having a, a, a lavish breakfast. And what year it, was this? This was around 2009, 2010. Okay, so this is before the release of the Taliban. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, I just stood there for a few seconds thinking, what is this? Is this, <laughs> is this a setup? The first thing that occurred to me was that maybe someone had actually pranked John <laughs> Kerry into thinking, into, into having this. But they, and I had my breakfast, and for the entirety of that time, the half hour or 40 minutes that I was there, there were laughs, there were the translation of jokes, they were talking about personal stuff. He, and, and I'm assuming then that Mullah Abdul Salam Zaif was there. So he's the former. Yes. Yeah, so he's a good friend of mine, a very good friend of mine. He was the ambassador to, from Pakistan. He was the spokesman uh, yes. of the Taliban before. Yes. He's no longer part of the government. But um, it's, yeah. it's, it's just, you know, absurd to the extent that, you know, you're, t you're in total disbelief. What is going on here? What is going on here? But let me... I mean, one thing that I, uh, I, I always come back to, uh, how much of, of the responsibility for Guantanamo and what's happened therein lies on our government here in the UK? Ooh. <laughs> Huge. 
How huge. How so? How so? Uh, I mean, uh, my personal belief, yeah. I'm having dealt with just the UK cases. Yeah. I know for a fact yeah. I would not have gone to Guantanamo had it not been for the British government and its involvement and the involvement particularly of the security services here. Wow. And we know that from, um, uh, from the agents involved, from the presence of uh, MI5 officers who came to my house here before I went, who turned up at Bagram when there was a gun put to my head, who turned up in Guantanamo, in the cases of several others, in the case of Bishar al-Rawi yeah, yeah. and Jamil al-Banna, who were British um, uh, citizens and residents uh, rendered from Gambia, in the case of Shakaram. There's, there's, there's a, the, the minimum you could say is that they were uh, a complicit and knew and uh, <clears throat> facilitated the questioning and actually questioned their own citizens whilst they're getting tortured. And I mean to the point of when I spoke of the the, Lawa, the taxi driver being murdered, mm. that is when the British agents were hovering around and asking questions of their own citizens. Mm. And I made them aware of it. Mm. Um, so their role from the use of the island of Diego Garcia, which they claimed was a conspiracy theory, which now has been, um, um, it's clear that the Diego Garcia was used as a place to stop over and hold torture uh, um, uh, people who were being tortured and rendered then to different countries like Abu Zubaydah and others. Uh, and of course, the very physical presence in Bagram and and, uh, and the facilitation of, uh, I've met people from other countries, not just Britons, who were interrogated by British intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. There's also an investigation <coughs> by the British police into whether uh, uh, MI5 agents were involved in the abuse of Abu Zubaydah, mm. not just the CIA. So there's a... Britain always in almost every conflict, you know, maybe some not like Vietnam, is 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 always there with America. Mm. And in this one, it was hand in glove. And it wasn't, to begin with, a right-wing government. It was the new Labour government of Tony Blair. And, and, and we know, I mean, mentioning Tony Blair, we know <coughs> the fact that uh, there was a virtually uh, an admission that... Uh, British subjects were sent to countries like Syria, like Libya and the such in order oh, yes. to be tortured. One of them, Abdul Hakim Balhaj. Oh, yes. I mean, the famous case whereby he and his, his wife yeah. were, were re uh, renditioned to, to Libya. I went to Libya. I took the lawyers from here yeah. to Libya to meet with him, to meet yeah. with Samia Saadi. Mm. And clearly, <laughs> up until this point, the British government had been denying everything, really? right? Yeah. But the evidence didn't come from the British government. No, it came from it the, came from the Libyan rebels the themselves, who yeah. found the documents which said yeah. uh, um, that there's been intelligence exchange. And that's Mark how and, Abdel Hakim secured the admission yep. and the apology for one pound. Only uh, one pound. Yeah. Although his he wife, said, his he, wife got yeah, yeah, one pound. And the apology was the most important thing. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. It's been the only apology Absolutely. by a British government. In Canada's case, it's mm. interesting because you mentioned Syria and others, right? Mm. So there were a bunch of Syrians. Uh, Canadian Syrians who were handed over or uh, the were, the Canadian government was complicit in their torture. Mm. But the Canadian government has apologized to every one of those Canadians, including Omar Khadr, who is a Canadian Egyptian held in Guantanamo as a child, lost his oh. eye. Again, I saw him in Bagram where he came in, emaciated, cut to pieces, um, gunshot wounds through his shoulder, eye lost, and he's a 14-year-old kid. Oh. And it took them almost 14 years to bring him back home and say we're sorry mm. it's, which uh, which on the you know which was um shameful on the part of both the u.s government and the canadian government mm, yeah. so it was obama who actually 
was the president when, when a former child was prosecuted in the military commissions for having allegedly engaged in a firefight during a war um, yeah. and, and having to be put in a position of claiming that that was a war crime so that he could be released from Guantanamo. And then the Canadian government dragging their heels over actually getting him home from Guantanamo. I, I can't tell you, Anas. I, they brought that kid into Bagram. And I remember, I'll never forget it. He was, his body was ripped to pieces. Oh. And he never complained. I never heard a word of complaint from him. Mm. They would torture him. They would drag him out of his cell, make him pile up crates of water with his hands shackled and his legs shackled. And this is while he's lost his eye. And they'd make him pile up as much as he could. Then they'd boot it down and make him do it again and again and again. Mm. And sometimes I'd see there's a tear trickling from his eye. And I couldn't tell whether that's because he's wounded in his eye or he's crying. But you'd never hear him complain at all, which was more than I could say was some of the adults. You said you'd come back to the uh, women in Guantanamo. Yeah, so there was this there was this girl, she contacts me, she's got a hijab on, on Facebook, and she says, um, you know, brother, were you in Guantanamo? I said, yeah, I was. She said, so was I. I said, um, when was any, this? This was about 10 odd years ago. Right. I said, there weren't any female prisoners in Guantanamo. She says, I wasn't a prisoner. I was one of your guards. Allah. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, tell me, like I've become Muslim. She said, yeah, um, I became a Muslim because I saw the prisoners, how they behave there. Right. First of all, uh, you know, she said, and something I know for a fact, there's abuse against females in, in, in the US military. It's massive. Yes. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. Um, and she said that when I'd encountered something like this, I'd never seen the prisoners behave in this way. They were very respectful, keep their eyes down, and so I saw that the weak amongst you was made stronger mm. by uh, your brothers. Mm. And I found that something deeply empowering because I felt become, I'd become weaker by the wow. way I was treated. Wow. wow. So I said, I promised that I would go back home, learn about this faith. And I accepted Islam. <laughs> Subhanallah. Okay. So uh, if we were to ask British officials today, what's the, the official line? What's the official policy on Guantanamo? Oh, God. Tell us, Andy. You were, Andy was at Ten Downing Street the other day. <laughs> I was on on Saturday. We held a we held a vigil in in central London, and then we had arranged. To oh, so you're outside Ten Downing Street. You weren't inside. I was going to no, ask no, you no, about no. the the brand of cookies that they serve. No, no. We delivered a letter calling on you know Rishi Sunak to pick up the phone and you know express support for the closure of Guantanamo and yeah. urge President Biden to close it. And, you know, and I also made sure that we put in the letter that, um, that we think that Rishi Sunak should offer to take in at least one or two of these men held at Guantanamo, proof yeah. for release, who can't be sent back to their home countries. Of course, I have absolutely um, no, no hope that he will do anything because um, I don't think that he would have the slightest interest in Guantanamo. And also, you know, we have um, the most racist and obnoxious Home Secretary in living memory um, who, who also wouldn't do anything. So um, that's not great. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that it's um, that, the, you know, the, what those of us who are interested in Guantanamo need to do over this coming year is to start to try and make inroads into the European Parliament again just to raise the issue there of European countries um, accepting some of these men who can't be returned to their home countries. Because one of the things it highlights is these are these, we are not asking you to take in dangerous people. Yeah. These are people who were dressed up as dangerous in the first place. 
And one of the things I meant to mention earlier, actually, Mozan, when you were talking about resettlements in Europe, countries who are asked to resettle prisoners mm -hmm. are given the files from Guantanamo yeah. that are full of lies yeah. about who they're supposed to be. I know that because when these resettlements were taking place, I would sometimes get calls from journalists in these countries saying, we've heard that this person is going to be taken in by our government, but we, you know, we, the allegations against them are that they're this, this, and this. And I would have to explain to them that those allegations were groundless, that yeah. there was no reason to believe that any of the stories against these prisoners were accurate. Mm. And the other, there's, there's another thing to that, Andy, though, of course, I, I always say, well, you know, they're not going to, the Americans are not going to release anybody mm. uh, to these countries without having vetted them. And there are no more better vetted people on the planet. Who have they been vetted <laughs> by? FBI, military intelligence, CIA, MI5, MI6. And, and in some cases, their own host countries. Do you know that Chinese intelligence came to Guantanamo to interrogate the Uyghurs? So in the war on terrorism, Libyan intelligence came, yeah. uh, Egyptian intelligence came, Jordanian intelligence, you name the intelligence yeah. agency, they were there taking part. They were, all the Western all, all countries, of them. not well, just Britain. Yeah, not just Britain, <laughs> not just Britain at all. In fact, everybody took part, As I said, even the Chinese. So what Russian intelligence, it tells you there everything you need to know that this war on terrorism was, uh, everybody took part. It's, this is a, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a, um, what is, it? what is it? Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. Everybody yeah, yeah. sticks but a knife in. But it's a dirty in. secret, isn't it? Yeah. Because, yeah. because it was kind of a free-for-all for intelligence. It's like, guys, we've, um, we've set up a facility where the, the rules don't apply. Come uh, on in and interrogate. And so you can see from this, Anas, for example, politics dictated because um, the Uyghurs, and they told me this, that that became a bargaining chip to try to get China on board for the invasion of Iraq, the Uyghurs. Put them on the terrorist list and we won't say anything. Um, now politics has turned around. The same U.S. government has uh, taken the Uyghurs off the terrorist list and put the Chinese government <laughs> under sanctions, the Communist Party. Yeah. So yeah. It, just it's just a, a political game in which the rule of law doesn't matter. And this is the problem, you see. And um, firstly, because um, I feel that a precedent has been set and it's been proven that if you have the political clout or might that you can create a paralegal space whereby you do whatever you want to do. And that's incredibly problematic. I mean, if you were to challenge China, for instance, or Russia, or India, or any other country uh, about their human rights abuses, they would readily point to and they do. the bastion yeah, yeah, yeah. democracy <laughs> and, they do. and they say, do. well, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, speak to them. Unless you'll be shocked, my friend. I was contacted just last year because it was the 20th anniversary of Guantanamo by the Xinhua news agency in China, which is the Chinese. Mm -hmm. And they interviewed me about Guantanamo. They want me to hammer Guantanamo yeah. and America as a result. So I did. But then I ended when they said, is there any message you'd like to give to the Chinese? I said, yeah, you make Guantanamo look like kindergarten. Because <laughs> like everything else, you do detention on an industrial scale, yeah, yeah. without charge or trial, and the yeah. and the Uyghurs in Guantanamo say, "Thank God we were sent to Guantanamo, not to China." No, not to China, you know. It's a it's a very important, you know, end end of this story is that the United you know the United States must be obliged to repudiate everything that Guantanamo stands for because you're right, it it does it leeches out around the world the yeah. malevolent influence of the United States having said, 
we tore up everything, guys. We can hold these Muslim guys forever without charge or trial. Mm -hmm. and it's significant that no one has been sent to Guantanamo since the spring of 2008. Yeah. It's significant that Donald Trump wanted to fill it with bad guys, but yeah. was told, no, we're not using Guantanamo. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. because, because if you have a case against somebody, you need to use the courts. Guantanamo, it doesn't work. We want to torture people, said Donald Trump. They said, <clears throat> we did the torture program. That also didn't work. This isn't benevolence. You know, as we were saying, they kill people in drone killings now, yeah. rather than having to bother with that whole messy business of apprehending people. Um, but what has to happen in the end is that the United States needs to recognize what a huge mistake it was. And, mm. you know, and as we've been talking about, they don't want to do that because it underpins so much, but it was. And is, we know Is there that. any recourse to address this, let's say, let's be, Legally. you know, fanciful here. Let, let's talk about the United Nations. I mean, there's, well, well, there's, let, a, there's a high commission for... Well, let me say this. I've, been, I've taken part, part in a multitude of different legal processes. Mm. One is I gave evidence to the Metropolitan Police mm. for the role of MI5. So MI5 was investigated by the police and they came back in the end after two to three years of investigation saying, we can't continue uh, because the government and the US are refusing to cooperate. Imagine that. Yeah. A police investigation. ICC. We gave evidence to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, um, who were investigating Taliban, Afghan National Army, and the US. The US responded by saying, and I kid you not, any person from the ICC who tries to investigate or prosecute any member of the US government will be uh, sanctioned, prosecuted, yeah. and arrested. And, they they, did, and, their, and their assets confiscated. And, and they did that. <laughs> I, I remember translating cheap, that into <laughs> Arabic. <laughs> they right. did that to it Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda, who was put yeah. under UN sanction yes. under uh, United, um, US sanctions. Yes. Um, to the again Intelligence and Security Committee here, we gave evidence yeah. here again. Um, it ended up in nothing. They said yes, some some irregularities happened. Uh, British agents kind of knew what was going on, but not really. We've learned lessons for the future. Won't do it again. Uh, we gave evidence to the judge-led independent inquiry by Sir Peter Gibson. Mm -hmm. Again, that came to nothing because we would never be able to put uh, our our representatives or us would never be able to see the evidence um, that they'd gathered against us um, or what methods they'd used. So in the end, what this was is that the entirety of this system was closing ranks. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. is nowhere to get justice. Uh, I, I get the feeling that, uh, you know, I, I wanted to pose the question uh, whether we've learned anything, whether any lessons have been learned, but I fear I know what the answer will be. And if anything, <laughs> if lessons have been learned, is how to close down the loopholes well, I was just going to say, you know, the torture, Abu Zubaydah's torture, the yeah. torture of Abdul Rahim and Nashir, and all those guys who were waterboarded, you know, this medieval torture technique, they were videoed. Yeah. They were all videoed. But what did the CIA do? Mm -hmm. They destroyed the they tapes. Destroyed. And who gave them the immunity? Yeah. Obama. There we go. I think what we've, I think what we've learned, and I think the United States government, apart from, you know, the far right lunatic fringes, knows that everything that happened was wrong and failed, that there were better ways to do things if you were looking for intelligence, all of it. Yeah. Um, the problem is that they replaced all of it with killing people with drones. And, um, That's it. and what underpins both of those, which is so horrible, is that, um, is that it's it's just 
it's in defiance of the law. Yeah. It stands outside of the law. Um, but, you know, drones is worse than Guantanamo, isn't it, Marzan? Because yeah. you, they kill you in a drone attack, you're dead. You know, you're in Guantanamo, you yeah. can eventually be freed. 